This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham joined me to talk about federal politics. Then, playwright Rory Godbold and Dr Carolyn Johnston, Senior Research Fellow in Law and Biotechnology at the University of Melbourne, both joined me in the studio to talk about the voluntary assisted dying legislation that comes into effect in Victoria tomorrow. Rory also wrote a play about the subject called When the Light Leaves, which is now showing at La Mama Theatre in Carlton. Then, finally, Anthony DePiran, lawyer and author of a book, City of Protest, A Recent History of Dissent in Hong Kong, joined me on Skype to talk about the recent protests in Hong Kong about the government's proposed extradition bill. I have with me in the studio Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me to talk about federal politics and what's been happening in Canberra. Hello there, Ben. Hello, Amy. Hi. How's life? Uh, Pretty good, pretty good. That's good. Yeah. Getting ready for the Community Cup? Um, Well, I'm not playing. um, No, neither. Injured. On the bench. Yeah, on the bench. What can I say? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, but um, they're going to miss our skills, Ben. Our mad skills. I don't think they'll be missing my skills. <laughs> yes, just quietly. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely try and pop down and you know get a get a sausage on a piece yeah. of bread and bring the family. Have a tinny. Yeah, maybe yeah. a tinny or two. Why not? Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. I know every time I've gone, it was freezing cold and then it poured rain right at the end. Normally how it rolls. Yeah, it yeah. seems pretty good. Yeah, no, that's normally how a community cut rolls, isn't it? it Feels right. Freezing winds, yeah. uh, cold rain, uh, and then Tim Rogers kicks a goal to win the game. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Players falling around in the mud. Oh, yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly doesn't make things easy when you're trying to, you know, improve your skills in playing in wet weather. It's not the greatest conditions, is it? I'm not trying to improve <clears> my skills. My skills are unimprovable when it comes to Australian football, unfortunately. <laughs> I can't even imagine it. I'm not going to imagine it. Um, ben, let's talk about federal politics and uh, people who aren't really that into football. Um, they seem to be a bit more into rugby, including the coalition. Now, there are um, some really important things happening at the moment in terms of uh, the Morrison government's priorities. And, of course, there are quite a limited number that they've made explicit to us but one of them is uh, tax cuts and an income tax cut package that they want to pass in full and it has uh, as we've said many times before about three stages and the last stage is quite an extreme um, flattening of the tax system and it means that um, you know people on moderate incomes and also high incomes end up paying the same tax rate, uh, which means that obviously people um, who are wealthier will be better off. And of course, we just saw overnight also that um, it will provide twice as much benefit to men than for women, according to the Australia Institute. And naturally, that obviously means that, you know, it's mimicking the gender pay gap that exists, among other things. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, rich men uh, pay the most tax, so the tax cut will advantage them the most. Um, So yeah, absolutely. The the tax cuts number one priority for the government, uh, and I, and I actually think that this shows really their true agenda, which is this deeply neoliberal acceleration of inequality, the flattening of the tax scale, 
Let's remember that Labor has committed to passing the first and second tranches of the tax cut immediately. So if the government were prepared to negotiate with Labor to split up the tax bill into a couple of parts or three parts, Labor would pass the uh, $1,000 straight away. Um, And, you know, Mm. I, I don't understand actually why the government doesn't just take that win um, you want to talk about rugby league? They they call it taking the two. You know, if you get a penalty in front of the goals, just take the kick, get the two points, and and play on. And I think um, you know the economy needs it. So mm. so we're actually seeing the government hold the economy to hostage mm. um, in in because of its ideological pursuit of tax cuts down the track. And Labor has a pretty good point on this, which is that the third tranche of tax cuts is two elections away. It's twenty four yeah. to twenty twenty four twenty five is when those tax cuts are due to kick in. Uh, Who knows what Australia will be like by that point? Well, we, do we really need to negotiate on that? You know, no. I mean, that's the. It just to me, it's it's mind-bogglingly short-sighted, and I think it shows the government's trying to wedge labour here on these tax cuts. It's not mm. that interested. It's not genuinely interested in delivering tax cuts now because if it wanted to, it would do it. You know exactly. So um, I think a lot of politics from the, the coalition there. Um, And, of course, this is in the background of a a, a quite quickly slowing economy now. Uh, So the economy is really slowing down fast and people are worried, economists are worried. You know, there's now people talking about will the the Reserve Bank cut interest rates further? Will the Reserve Bank have to start doing quantitative easing down the track, you know? Um, That's really interesting. That's never happened in Australia before. Well, Um, it depends if the government decides to use any of its levers because, as the Reserve Bank has said, there's only so much they can do. That's right. The Reserve Bank has basically said that they've failed, I would have to say. It's a mea culpa uh, from those guys basically saying that they've been unable to stimulate the economy. Um, Some would say it's because they haven't really tried, Mm. you know, keeping interest rates at current levels for one of the longest periods of stable interest rates in recent history. They clearly needed to have cut interest rates before they did so last month. Um, Well, yes. I was wondering why it didn't happen in the election campaign when they were reviewing interest rates at that point because it seemed like we already knew that the writing was on the wall at that point. Yeah, I mean, I think it should have happened in February or March. I mean, the writing was on the wall for some time. Inflation was very low. The the Reserve Bank said that it was waiting to see what was happening with jobs. Well, we're starting to see Mm. now unemployment tick up. It's ticked up to 5.2% and it seems like it's going to tick up further. So the economy is slowing inflation is low wages are bumping along the bottom that's not a very healthy economy so we need a fiscal stimulus as well as a monetary stimulus yes and um, some of the government front benches have come out and said and i think it was matthias corman who said that when um, it you talk about either tax cuts or stimulus in terms of government um, you know stimulating the economy through other kinds of spending instead of giving tax cuts to uh, individuals they said we would pick the tax cuts because they are more important and will benefit the economy more than if the government stimulated the economy and I guess they're trying to say that we're not um, looking to be Keynesians here. Yeah more ideology from the government I mean that's actually just wrong that's a lie Mm. the best way to stimulate the economy would be to give money to poor people who will spend all of it um, which is why people have been calling for an increase in the rate of new start for so long now. I mean, just on macroeconomic grounds alone, we should be raising the rate of new start by $75. It would only cost $5 billion, I think less than that, $3 billion a year. Yeah. Um, those people are going to spend that money. 
um, because they need to, um, you know, because their incomes are low. Mm. Well, uh, no one's saving money on Newstart, <laughs> or no, not a lot, if they not. were. Yeah. Whereas uh, tax cuts delivered across the broad range of the middle class and particularly up to the upper class, that money is not necessarily spent. I mean, some of, the, some of that money will just go straight into people's mortgages. Uh, and some of that money will go, um, you know, into discretionary spending that's not as big a stimulus to the economy as the sort of spending that poor people do, which is, you know, down at their local shops, um, you know, on groceries, on necessities, on consumer consumer items. So, I mean, there's that right there. Mm. I mean, what's concerning, I think, is that the government really has a, an anti-Keynesian bent in general. They have a they have a bias towards austerity, as we saw in the 2014 budget. So if the economy gets into trouble, the Reserve Bank keeps cutting interest rates. Will the government be prepared to go back into deficit in order to stimulate the economy? And, and you'd have to think that the signs are bad no, for that. Yeah. I mean, I think they Josh... They want a surplus. Josh Rodenberg even said that on the weekend, mm. I believe. He said... Um, if it's a choice between the st- the surplus and stimulating the economy, he said the surplus is more important, which is madness for anyone who understands macroeconomics. Yeah, it is insane. Um, we're seeing some negotiations begin, and uh, she. Well, it's funny that Pauline Hanson does not agree with the third tranche of tax cuts, which is, you know, she can smell that a lot of people may not support giving a lot more money back to higher income earners, but there are others who are currently willing to do deals on this legislation, including the Centre Alliance, which was formerly the Nick Xenophon team or party. And um, the particular senator I'm thinking of is Rex Patrick, who is in negotiations with Matisse Corman at the moment and is potentially going to engage in a horse trading exercise whereby he might support uh, the legislation by getting something else in return and he's signalled in particular that he wanted um, the government to start uh, regulating gas uh, exporting and making sure that companies had to get permission from the government before it exports gas overseas. Yeah, so Rex Patrick is emerging as probably the, the, the key vote in the Senate along with Jackie Lambie because uh, the government will need the Centre Alliance and Jackie Lambie to pass pretty much every bill. That's if Labor and the Greens don't vote for them. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so there's a lot of horse trading going on. Um, Patrick's signalled that he wants to do, you know, he wants to negotiate on energy policy. Whether the government is prepared to negotiate on energy policy, I think, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, the government's pretty hell-bent on, as I said, using this entire tax package to try and wedge Labor, to try and pretend that Labor is holding back the stimulus, you know, if you like. Labor's mm. holding back your tax cut. Um, you know, that that's a game of chicken, I think, which we'll probably see the government lose i think you know given where the economy's at i think in a couple of months time if parliament's back and they can't get their tax cuts through that's a that's a defeat that's a fail so um, i think the pressure will ramp up on the government quite quickly and i think that's a good thing because you know one of the things that i've noticed over the last few weeks too is that the media seems incapable of exerting any scrutiny on the government mm-hmm. because the government's not doing anything so the, there's nothing to report so in the meantime the media's spending all their time on labor, labor. and its internal problems and john secker mm-hmm. and the cfmeu and so on and so forth they are certainly putting a lot of time and effort into that issue uh, it is a bit surprising, but they're not surprising. I mean, like the media feeds on drama and conflict and, you know, brand new news, something that's new. So if, as you said, nothing new is coming out, then, of course, you've left a vacuum that needs to be filled. 
And yet we did see some significant admissions from the Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton, on the weekend. On Insiders. In his his interview with Annabelle Crabb on Insiders. Now, you know, I think this is actually worth pointing out. Now, Annabelle Crabb is often criticised by people as being a bit of a lightweight um, because of her cooking show (laughs) and the fact that, you know, she likes to wear a nice dress from time to time. Um, She's not considered a serious political journalist. But in this interview with Peter Dutton on the weekend, she got Peter Dutton to admit all sorts of really important things. For example, he admitted that the government is still looking into the Australian Signals Directorate spying on Australians domestically. It's a Mm -hmm. major, major admission. And that was, we should mention, Annika Smethurst's story that meant that she was raided by the AFP a couple of weeks ago. Absolutely. So this all goes back to that AFP raid of News Limited journalist Annika Smithhurst. Why was she raided? Well, they said that were looking for documents and evidence related to the leak to her about that very program, mm. that very decision by the government to look into spying on Australians by our military apparatus, that's the Australian Signals Directorate. They're part of the armed forces. And she reported on that, and as a result of that, she was raided. So I think an incredibly important admission. Annabel Crabb also got Dutton to admit that he's looking to... Uh, uh, to re recontract uh, Paladin, who are the dodgy, you know, fly by night, um, a, a shack on the beach kind mm. of shell company that's in charge of the four hundred twenty million dollar offshore detention prisons in Manus Island. Yeah, that didn't have an open tender process no. last time. It doesn't appear that it will this time, no, does it? No, I mean this is. All sorts of government money being spent on incredibly dodgy stuff, you know, and and I. It does surprise me that this is not a bigger actual a bigger mm. issue. I mean, this is a, this is a scandal in my opinion. Um, the Auditor General has looked into this. The Department of Home Affairs itself, I think, is a, a deeply politicised, scandal-ridden, um, crisis-prone department. You know, it's run by Dutton in cahoots with the powerful Secretary Mike Pizzullo, mm. the Secretary of Home Affairs, who's kind of extended a kind of bureaucratic empire into the Canberra uh, public service and is considered by many to be one of the most powerful public servants in the country. And was under some controversy only recently from calling a senator from the Centre Alliance about... Called, called Rex Patrick yes. and he said, don't say nasty things about me on the on the radio. Yep. Patrick said, I don't know if that's appropriate if a, a senior public servant's ringing elected senators to say, don't say things to me about, about myself. Then we found out that he'd also done the same to Jordan Steele-John. So, mm, you know, yep. I, th- I think is a guy that we should be exerting maximum scrutiny on rather than worrying about what's going on in the unions. Yeah, well, of course, they, the media reported that Peter Dutton sat down with Pizzullo and said it wasn't appropriate, and that was the end of that. <laughs> now, Mike, don't do it again. Yeah, yeah that, that's it. I'm sure that was a very stern talking yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> like being whipped over the head with a, a wet lettuce there. Exactly. Yeah. And the other thing that we also heard was um, Annabelle Crabb was probing Peter Dutton on the Medivac legislation and um, how many people have actually come to Australia under that legislation and how many of them were, in fact, uh, criminals that the government was touting would somehow put Australians at risk. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. When the Medivac bill was passed uh, in the teeth of the government's uh, opposition to it, the government said all these kind of things about what would happen. There'd be an influx of criminals into the country. 
you know, any two GPs could get together and bring someone to Australia. Of course, they were lies. Mm. They were they were out and out lies. The Medivac Bill's been operating for a few months now. Thirty people have come to Australia because they were sick. Um, there's been no need to reopen Christmas Island, even though you know they spent all 180 million or whatever they spent on it to to reopen it because of the the influx that they thought would happen. Of course, that hasn't happened. So um, yeah, she exposed uh, a number of the government's lies in that interview. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I think it shows also how unaccountable Dutton is. I mean, he's able to to say this kind of stuff, and there's really minimal blowback. You know, and he's emboldened yep. by his mm. election victory, I think. He he sees that he's won. He's seen off uh, the lefties. He's seen off Get Up, who campaigned really strongly in his electorate to try and unseat him. And, and now he's sitting pretty as the, the minister again. And, and I think that the raids on the media and the strengthening of Australia's national security apparatus, that's just going to continue apace now. Mm. And one of the things that has also uh, gone under the radar to some extent is the deal that Australia did by taking two uh, Rwandans who uh, were very much uh, suspected of committing atrocities in their home country and the US didn't want them and... um, but couldn't kind of prosecute them um, to the what to the extent that they wanted to, and so we Australia um, brought them here through the Home Affairs Department. That has been something which uh, Rwandan refugees who have come to Australia are quite upset about, um, and not much has really been said. No, and, and in fact, these are the only two apparently that we took uh, for some bizarre reason. The other thing that Dutton said was that. Uh, the full number of refugees that the US has agreed to take has not been given to them. So that there are, I think, hundreds of extra places that we could offer the US. Mm. Um, Well, the US has offered Australia. Yes. So there's people on Nauru and Minas right now who could go to the US if Australia would agree to let them go. And we're not. I mean, and I think this shows the true depravity of the offshore detention system because the government is keeping those asylum seekers there, those proven refugees there, as a deterrent. It's it's keeping yeah. them there to show people that if you try to go, come to Australia by boat, you'll end up in a horrible prison where people are committing suicide. That's, that's, a, that's a, a remarkably cruel thing for our government to do. Exactly. There has been increased scrutiny on... Um, this issue, in a sense, from activists who've been reporting that there are increasing suicide attempts on Nauru as well. Oh, so, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, I talked to an asylum seeker uh, on Minus Island a couple of weeks ago for The Guardian, um, and he told me some horrifying stories about what's going on mm. there. Yeah, and um, there's one other interesting issue around human rights that's come up. Um, The UN, the United Nations, has acknowledged or highlighted that um, the government's robo-debt system is very much um, breaching human rights and is a very concerning uh, program that continues to this day and also um, certainly adds to mental anguish and in some cases people, um, you know, suffering very much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, well... We know, <laughs> those of us who've, who've looked into robo-debt over the years, um, you and I have talked about it a yeah. number of times on the show, Amy, um, 
uh, I wrote some of the original articles about RoboDebt. Um, and, and, of course, it was always a, a system designed to punish welfare recipients, to, to try and, and drag as many debts into the system as possible, whether they were legitimate or not, whether, in fact, they were legal or not. Um, so RoboDebt's undergoing a second court challenge at the moment. Mm. Um, the government's been desperately trying to keep it out of court. It actually ended up settling with the first one that went through court in order to stop it from being a test case. And so, yeah, it's undoubtedly a breach of human rights, but, of course, it just highlights just how weak Australia's system of human rights protection is. We have no Bill of Rights. We have no constitutional enshrined rights to things like liberty or fairness in our constitution um, or in our law, in our federal law. And, you know, and and this is why things like, you know, federal police digging through the underwear drawer of journalists can happen because um, not only do we have very weak protections on freedom of the media, we have very weak protections across the board when it comes to human rights. Yeah, we do. And a lot of people have recently been highlighting the need for a a Bill of Rights and that it would be not that difficult to do it if the political will existed to do it. Yeah, the time has come, I think, Amy, for all of us to get behind a Bill of Rights in this country. We can't trust the government anymore to protect our human rights and we can't trust the major political parties. You know, there needs to be a much stronger set of protections to stop uh, powerful people from trampling all over our rights. Exactly. Um, Just finally, because I mentioned it, at the top of the show, we saw Susan Lee, our new environment minister. Oh, yes, how can we forget? Saying that she would be an environmentalist as the environment minister and suggested that feral cats were the biggest uh, problem for our biodiversity, which, of course, feral cats are a problem and certainly a large one. Uh, But she suggested land clearing was not a particular um, or a significant concern or more concerning than feral cats, which uh, many conservation ecologists would significantly challenge because, as we've heard on this show and others, um, it is the single biggest cause of uh, extinction and biodiversity loss. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just another example of a coalition environment minister who's unable to follow the science, unable to actually protect the environment because it's politically, infe- you know, impossible for her to, to protect the environment. I mean, what's what's the biggest threats to the environment? We know what the biggest threats to the environment are. Yeah, it's land clearing, it's habitat loss, it's mm-hmm. climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's not going to do anything about that. Um, On water, um, she's made the astonishing statement that she was going to lend environmental water to farmers during the current drought and they can pay back the water rights to the government uh, when times are better. Uh, So, I mean, it's actually incapable... She seems incapable of understanding what environmental flows are all about. They're flows for the environment, for the river. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you give that water to farmers, then it's not being (laughs) for the environment, is it? No, and we all remember the fish kills that have already uh, happened and we want to prevent those from happening again, which, of course, means we can't afford to lend water. But, of course, Susan Lee faced a massive swing in her electorate away from her towards an insurgent rural candidate, um, and so she's under a lot of pressure in that in that regional electorate of hers to deliver uh, for her constituents, mm. and, and one of the things they want is water. And, and this, I think this highlights the zero-sum game that we have to face up to in terms of a lot of the environmental policy issues that face our country. It is a zero-sum game. We're going to have to face the fact that our farming practices have been unsustainable for a century or longer, for two centuries, uh, and that, therefore, if we want 
the Murray-Darling to survive, we're going to have to stop irrigating it to death. But, of course, Susan Lee can't admit that. No, exactly. As you said, she has her constituents to answer to, many of which are farmers. Yeah, and nor will she do anything on the environment either, you know, or on climate change. So, um, yeah, I mean, the best you can hope for from a coalition environment minister is they don't actively make things worse. Like Greg Hunt, he was a really bad one. Um, We'll see. Uh, You you couldn't be too optimistic about Susan Lee as environment minister, could you? No, it's not a massive step up from Melissa Price, I've got to say. No. And meanwhile, of course, Angus Taylor's in the energy portfolio and he's gung-ho for, you know, nuclear at the moment, uh, which is a bizarre kind of sideshow, really. It is, yeah. Yeah. The Australian is getting quite fixated on nuclear energy as well. Yeah, nuclear energy is the kind of right-wingers, renewable energy, isn't Mm. it? Uh, I guess because it's big and it's got, you know, large machines and physics and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, as anyone who's... lots of money in it. Lots of money. Well, anyone who's looked into nuclear energy in Australia will tell you it's just... It's it's not competitive on any economic grounds. It just can't compete against wind and solar. Mm. So it would need massive government subsidies to operate. Why would we bother doing that? I don't know. Ideological reasons, I guess. (laughs) We sound like we're on repeat today, don't we? I think this is going to be a long three years. It's going to be a long three years. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming in, Ben, to talk about federal politics. Thanks, Amy. I've been speaking with Ben Altham from New Matilda, and he joins me to discuss the latest in federal politics and what's been happening over in Canberra, that wonderful uh, country town that is our capital city. So uh, it is my favourite town, in fact, I think. It's high up on the list of places to visit and it's very beautiful in autumn and winter just freezing cold this is a podcast from 3 triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio I've got two special guests who've come into the studio specially to discuss a very important subject. Um, We're going to be talking about uh, voluntary assisted dying, which um, was passed into legislation as an act in 2017, November 2017. And it starts uh, really soon, tomorrow, in fact, 19th of June. And it's a a very important uh, reform that had been campaigned on for many, many years. And Um, There are so many people who um, have put a lot of energy and emotion into this subject because it is a really important um, issue around human dignity and and personal choice and the ability to die with dignity when someone is terminally ill. And so I have two uh, people here in the studio with me to talk about it and also the play that um, surrounds this, which is called When the Light Leaves, and it's written by... Uh, playwright Rory Gold, Gold, sorry, my brain isn't working today, Rory Godbold, and he joins me in the studio, as well as Dr. Carolyn Johnston, who is based at the Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne, and um, she's a senior research fellow in uh, biotechnology and the law, and she's also an expert in medical ethics and worked in that field in the UK, according to her biography. And uh, and so we're going to talk about some of the legal elements, some of the practical elements, but also the real personal and um, human elements of this issue and the play. So I welcome uh, Rory to the show. Hi there, Rory. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having us. Thank you for coming in. And hi there, Carolyn. Hello, Amy. Good morning. 
It's great to have you, and uh, it's great to talk about this subject, which I know is um, you know important for to both of you and uh, many people in Victoria who um, have campaigned hard on this. Um, Rory, maybe I'll start with you because you have I've seen a video of you even talking about the importance of needing this legislation, and you have a personal um, reason why this was very much important to you and your family. And I was wondering if you could share with us how you're approaching this issue um, yourself and then we'll get into, you know, the play and... and yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, my involvement in this issue has been pretty unexpected. It's come about just through um, the fact that my father got quite involved in it um, in the final stages of his life. Uh, Dad was a nurse for 30 years. Um, he spent most of his nursing career in um, palliative care and then in the last years of his life, he went into particularly cancer care. So when he got a stage four metastasized cancer diagnosis, um, he knew exactly what he was in for. Um, and with that understanding, that intimate understanding of death, he decided that he wanted um, a, a say in how he might go. Mm. Um, so this was, you know, kind of... Finding out your dad's dying is a huge shock. And then as he went through this process, it was a huge shock, but it was it totally opened up my understanding to life and death and, and choice and autonomy and what it means to be human. Um, so it's, you know, it was a gift that he gave me. Um, and it's been such a an honour to take that gift and to continue to kind of... Uh, Educate in the way that Dad spent the last couple of years of his life doing. Yeah, and um, it's interesting that both of your parents are and were nurses. Yeah. So it's an interesting <laughs> yeah. upbringing. It yeah. is, isn't it? Yeah, and you were from the country as well yeah. in yeah. South. Grew up in yeah in Inverloch. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a. I mean, over there, it's such a close-knit community. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, even in the hospitals, everyone knows everyone. Yeah. 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 So mum and dad, like were known by so many people in the community it was because yeah. they did work at the hospital and the hospital is such like a nucleus of any community so mum and dad were quite well known um and when so my parents were living in darwin when dad got the diagnosis and they moved back home and like it really opened my eyes up to how great regional communities are because they stepped back into the community and they had a, a huge fabric of people mm -hmm. there to support them um and in terms of the palliative care nurses they dad had been their boss yeah. so that was an interesting thing but also mm -hmm. a complex kind of thing as well um that so it's a regional communities bring a lovely thing but they also bring complexity yes in that, you know there was no kind of uh anonymity in that final stage for dad mm -mm, yeah you certainly don't get much privacy no <laughs> news travels fast in yeah. the country yep exactly yeah. right yeah um so one of the elements when I was reading through um, an interview that your dad did with Andrew Denton yep. on his podcast, um, and your dad, I should say, he's Ray Godbold, he um, said that really all of his other organs initially were very healthy. And so he was a little bit like, how's this all going to pan out when every other part of me is really healthy, but I've got this, you know tumour that is stage four. I mean, how did that play into his idea around having a sense of control or any control over how his disease might progress and how he might eventually die? 
Yeah, it's a really fascinating thing. And the character in the play says that, how will I die? And the nurse can't kind of engage with it. Um, But it is that thing. Dad used to call it the catastrophic death. So there's, there's numerous ways you can go, but then there's the catastrophic death, which just, you know, there's a hemorrhage and mm. you, you're gone. Um, or, you know, there's the death that palliative care achieves for the majority of people. Um, or there's all these other kind of curveballs to it. But what was interesting with dad's death is dad was so in touch with what his death might be like but still when the process came and when the time came it was completely unexpected Mm. and it was completely unexpected because of some of those reasons because he was still a six foot tall man who was now you know just under 40 kilos um some of his organs were working really really well so it's that the the breakdown of the body in those final stages is where the kind of really unpredictable things come in Mm. and also being in a regional area there was some problems with medication and getting access to doctors when the stages were becoming quite difficult um so and at that stage mum was because he was in home dying in the home mum was administering the medication and for her as a nurse that became quite complex as well Mm. so all these kind of things made a bit of a perfect storm um and then you know the event did kind of get to that messy stage which dad was fearing so much yeah um that's highlighting some of the issues that we'll pick up with carolyn in just a minute um i want to understand uh why your dad or um, why he became such a prominent campaigner because he was talking about voluntary assisted dying whilst he was in fact also dying from cancer and he wanted um, this legislation to pass I believe or he wanted some kind of way for people to have a choice um, towards the end. Um, In terms of his aims or passion for this legislation, what was at the heart of what he wanted in this because I know he had himself um, said publicly that he had um, acquired a drug that he might use he wasn't sure and as you said it's so unpredictable that you often don't really know when to take it and when when it's the end so yeah what was some of those kind of issues that your dad was um, dealing with in terms of his public advocacy and also his personal choice yeah well the nurses there's been heaps and heaps of nurses that have really added um, weight and voice to this. So mm. thank you to all the nurses for sharing yes. their personal stories. Um, but uh, Dad, yeah, he became a bit of a cowboy in the end and I think you'd like that expression <laughs> that um, he did go a bit rogue. So he was on the front of the age acquiring um, Nembutal from Dr Rodney Syme and both of them, that was a provocation to politicians and to the authorities Dad came home from that thinking, well, the federal police could knock on the door and the house could be raided. We didn't hear yeah. anything. Mm. So that, that to me was a sign that the law was out of step with what was happening if they were just going to turn a blind eye to something so public. But what Dad wanted, Dad, as a lot of nurses and health professionals do, as well as people that have lost loved ones, they carry those those deaths around them, with them. Mm. Good deaths, bad deaths. And... I think, you know, Dad as a palliative care nurse really, really tried to do his best to make 
every one of his patients comfortable, at peace with death um, and in control of their death as much as he could. But he saw that there was limits very rarely to the Mm. palliative care system. So I think he just wanted to kind of highlight that and, and to make it possible for people to have these good deaths. The interesting thing about Dad was that even though it was about his control and his death, a lot of the process was about other people, so helping other people in the future to die well, but mm. also the reason he did it was for us, his family. He knew what the death might be like and he wanted to avoid putting us in that difficult situation. Um, and that's a really interesting thing to think about when people are looking at this. People aren't being coerced into it, but they are thinking about themselves as well as their loved ones. Yeah. Yeah, well, I certainly um, understand that because I've had loved ones who've passed in a very horrible way and, you know, the the main memory I have of them is the way that they were mm. in their last days of dying and, you know, they're on morphine, they're not making any sense, you know, there's yeah. a lot of a loss of dignity and also of just self. There's still, you know, some parts of them there but not... It doesn't feel like it's the same person you knew. Mm. Um, so I can see that's also a, a kind of factor that some people don't want that traumatic yeah. memory for their family and they want to remember the good times. I think death does carry trauma yeah. for the people that are left behind. But I also think just because the person is dying, so you know their existence is limited, I don't think that trauma in that instance is any less valid. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, just because it has an end point doesn't mean it's not important. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. Um, In terms of this uh, legislation which has been brought forward through the Labor Daniel Andrews government and obviously through many campaigners in the health sector and beyond, uh, many people have said that the legislation itself is uh, fairly rigorous and uh, conservative and it's not um, going, to, going to be open to a huge number of people because there are a number of um, things you need to do to qualify and situations that you need to be in for you to be able to access um, voluntary assisted dying. So Carolyn, um, in terms of your legal expertise, what are some of the um, safeguards that were put in place? Because um, I know this was hotly debated in the parliament around, you know, just how um, should this be accessed and who should access it and what what stage of um, illness do you need to be in to access it? What were some of the main qualifiers that um, are in the law that, meet, that people have to meet? Well, it's been described as some of the most rigorous uh, assisted dying legislation in the world um, and the, the Act runs to about 130 pages. So it's, it's, it is a pretty rigorous... Um, process. Uh, I think about 150 people a year are likely to access it over the the coming years and we'll see what happens in the the initial phase. Um, There are certain eligibility criteria. Um, So somebody has to be a resident in Victoria, they have to be an adult, so 18 and over. They have to be able to have what we call decision-making capacity. They have to understand what's, you know, what's on offer and the implications of that. But I think the key thing is that um, 
they need to be suffering from an advanced progressive illness which is likely to cause death within six months. Um, and this was one of the contentions before Parliament. So originally it was proposed that there should be um, a 12-month period, so a death um, likely in the next year. But I think because of the, the uncertainty around prognostication, that was reduced down to six months, unless somebody is suffering from a neurological condition like um, motor neuron disease or, or dementia, in which case you, you'd be thinking about the 12-month time limit. Um, and I think one of the key issues also is that... Um, the person has to be suffering in a way that is intolerable to them and and can't be relieved. So it's a very sort of a personal journey, I think, where this is... We're not saying the legislation replaces palliative care, but it's for those people where palliative care really can't offer enough in terms of pay, pain relief or control over the, the manner of their dying. Mm. And the person actually has to initiate the yeah. conversation, so no uh, medical practitioner could say, well, you could do this. No, that's right. Mm. And I think that whole idea is so that um, it enables the person to, to make a voluntary uncoerced choice. There there are concerns, I think, around the world with thinking about legislation of this type, whether people might feel that they, they need to make a request so they're not a burden on their family members. Um, so, yes, the idea is that the individual has to initiate the conversation, that healthcare practitioners must not do that. And as far as I'm aware, that includes not even putting up information in a waiting room. So the idea mm. then is, well... Who will, you know, will there be enough information about this so people not only know that it's an option to ask, but also feel empowered to do so? I would imagine that's a very difficult conversation to start with a doctor. Yes, and you'd yeah. have to feel pretty knowledgeable, I think, in about what's on board and 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 where that conversation might lead, mm. and also comfortable with the person you're speaking with. Yes, yeah, yeah that's like, right. And trusting, I guess. That's right. And, and yeah. I think one of the issues around assisted dying is, well, will it breach the trust between a healthcare practitioner and a patient? Um, I don't see it like that. I think having a healthcare practitioner um, standing by the patient and supporting them at that really difficult time is, is crucial. Mm. Um, so... So in my mind, it's important that there is enough access to this in a way that is, is supportive of, of people who want to use it. Yeah. And yeah, as you said, if there's not a huge amount of um, public information, of course, there is online, you could you yeah. know, do your own research. But if it's not kind of in your face where you're walking or sitting and you probably it may not come to mind it mm. may i guess it depends on the individual mm. um, but also there are more than there is more than one medical practitioner who would be involved in this situation isn't there so it's not as simple as raising it with your gp and they sign off and if you no. fit all the other criteria you're done that's right and yeah. th th this is part of i think of the, the rigorous process mm. now whether it proves to be too rigorous we'll have to see mm. because of course these are people um as rory has described with his father who are very sick mm. um and they will have to raise the issue with uh, a first doctor um somebody who's who's willing to take that on board so that might be their gp or a specialist might be a specialist oncologist for example um and that first doctor will assess the eligibility criteria, um, you know, whether they're, they're suffering from that, 
that condition, the disease or condition likely to cause death, usually in days or weeks. Um, and then uh, a second doctor has to be involved, uh, again, to check in the information has been given to the patient, check the condition. And this doctor will be a specialist in that area of, of medicine that they, they, the, the, the patient is, is, is the condition is the patient is suffering from. Um, then the patient has to make a, a written request and a final request. And only then will, if they fulfil the criteria, will they be supplied with the, the drug. Mm. So we, I think that's likely to take in the shortest period around 10 days. Um, but it does require not only finding doctors who are willing to support it, but actually being able to physically access yes. doctors. And that might be a problem in a, in a yeah. rural area. Yeah. True, and also really long waiting lists for specialists especially. Yeah, yeah. and there's a, at the moment there's no, and they probably won't be published, the amount of doctors who are, have done the training. Um, there are the navigators who can point you in the right direction, but at the moment we don't quite know how many doctors have done the training. So no, how many? It's around about a hundred, but, yeah, but, right. but but we're not sure. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so there will mm. be an interesting process mm. for people to find, and maybe yet that will create a barrier whether they can yeah. get mm. in for the appointment mm. when they need to. Mm. Yeah, whether they can physically go as yeah. well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, in terms of the training, are you aware of like what doctors? are trained in or what additional support or information they've been given to be able to have this conversation? Well, um, uh, as far as I know, they have to do some online training, uh, which lasts about six hours. So they have to fulfil those training criteria in order to be available to provide this support. And then um, the the healthcare practice that they're working in say a a hospital will be providing some sort of internal training and support for um healthcare practitioners who who are providing this sort of support so they you know there will be internal mechanisms i think within uh, institutions to provide extra support and debriefs and Mm. uh, and discussions and is there an understanding of how um the person will administer the dose of um the drug themselves and where and in what kind of environment it happens is there any kind of um specified scenario or is it more open well um the act provides that the 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 medication the lethal dose has to be provided in a, a locked box um and then at the time of choosing the person can as I understand it, mix the the drug and drink it. Mm -hmm. So that they will be doing that in their own home. And that provides, I suppose, some sense of, well, we don't know quite when and how that will happen. Um, In Canada, we know that uh, about, I think it's about a third of people who are given the prescription for the drug to to uh, the, the the lethal drug actually don't choose to drink it. So something it's about having control over the manner of death and having the the surety of having the the drug available. Mm. Um, uh, but but yes, the idea is that the individual will, will drink the drug um, if they are unable to do that because they're physically incapable of doing that at the time. Then um, an application can be made uh, to the review board to have um, a physician. Uh, that the, the doctor can actually um, provide the drug. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so that brings me back to Rory because that's, you know, is very much your father's story. Yeah. Um, could you share a bit about the timing for him and, I mean, how he was going to make the choice about when was the right time for him and his view of it being the right time for you guys too because I know, you know, it's really hard because you don't know when to say goodbye or like yeah. when when is the right time. Yeah, it's uh, something that really sticks with me about the whole experience is that Dad knew exactly the time when it was ready to take and he actually died the next, early the next day. Um, but it... So he kind of got to the stage where he felt that it was becoming unmanageable um, and then he decided that he, he wanted to take it. At that stage, though, his physical condition had meant that he was unable to ingest it, which is what I think is so great about mm. the Victorian legislation is that if someone has gone through the whole process that they're not precluded from taking well, from accessing voluntary assisted dying if they've gone through the process mm. um, because of their physical condition. Dad was unable to swallow um, and the, the state that he was in, we were worried that if he attempted... Um, you know, would what the situation might become worse and even more unmanageable. Um, you know, what happens if you can only take five mils of it? What happens yeah. to the body? There's all those questions that were kind of going through our mind. Um, so, yeah, he got to the stage and then we had to say, no, you know, we've, we've got to uh, do it in another way. Of course, then as well, there was all these... Uh, legal issues that might have come up if we did assist him to take it as well. Um, so, yeah, it was mm. a, a very difficult situation um, and it's it's great to see that clause in there that, you know, if someone goes through the process um, that no matter what their physical state is, they will be able to access what yeah. they want. Yeah, and that would be um, through a medical practitioner who knows the patient potentially or it could be... Yes, I, I, well, I, I, I suppose that would be the ideal. Yeah, yes, it would yeah. be somebody who, who who knows the patient and can support them at they, that that end. Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah. I know it is uh, front of mind for many in the medical field at the moment. Um, you know, it's still controversial to some people in the community and so we've seen some um you know i guess picketing of hospitals yeah. mm-hmm. particularly well, the, the implementation Peter conference there was yeah. picketing at that too yeah exactly yeah. and so people are concerned about you know this issue and there are a lot of um religious views that would come into this um but yeah there is i mean the reason why peter mac i guess was targeted was because they were there to create the drug or to mix it up together um and you know they're not the only hospital mm. who needs to do that mm. um in, in victoria but are there any um ways that perhaps if a medical practitioner felt uncomfortable or had a moral or religious kind of um feeling or um i guess they didn't feel comfortable doing it what is there a way for them to still be able to um facilitate the patient you know seeing someone else if they themselves couldn't do it yes so the the act provides for conscientious objection which means that a healthcare practitioner doesn't have to be involved at any stage even providing information about it um if they if they feel they don't want to um, and we can see how this might play out with with access and provision with perhaps 
uh, hospitals, uh, Catholic hospitals, mm, um, yeah. uh, who have said that whilst they won't um, uh, provide uh, VAD, they won't impede access. And this is where I think there will be pathways towards uh, services who, who will provide assisted dying. Yes. Mm. So there is conscientious objection to that. And I think that that goes some way perhaps to uh, relieve the concerns of health practitioners who, who really feel this is this goes against their, their, their moral views. And the law in essence is about comfort and boundaries and control and it's, it's mm. important that it's there because, mm. you know, that's what it is for the patient. It should be there for the doctor yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I would think that a, a number of health practitioners would feel very uncomfortable about, you know, if they've, if they've got to know a patient over a long period of time... Uh, they don't want to feel that they're giving up on the patient. But at the same time, I suppose mm. they want to support that, that individual choice that the patient has. So mm. it's, a, it's a tough one for them, I think. Yeah. yeah. And how does someone, uh, how does a doctor assess whether a person is feeling coerced by outside influences perhaps they feel financially mm. coerced because mm. they can't earn money and mm. their family isn't well off or you know they can't they don't want to be um a drain on their family and are self-conscious about the impact it has on their family i mean i'm sure their family wouldn't see it that way but some individuals might feel uh, i guess a pressure or a sense of coercion mm. how does one i guess evaluate that well, I suppose that's just through discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, and and both the, the doctors involved would be asking questions perhaps about, well, you know, how did you come to the decision yeah. to think about assisted dying? Uh, what are your motives? What's your understanding and your, your anticipation of what will happen? And, and I suppose try and draw it out that way mm. um, to make sure that it is a, 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 a properly freely chosen decision, made decision, yeah. Yeah. Um, Rory, in your play... Which is fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, it's at La Mama. It's called When the Light Leaves. And uh, also, the actors do a phenomenal job, yep. I must say. They're pretty good. Yeah, yeah. very impressive. Yeah. Um, there are some really interesting stylistic elements, uh, particularly the use of repetition and also that um, use of the light swinging across mm. the stage, which I found really um, meaningful. Like, it gave a lot of emphasis yep. on the dynamics of the emotions between the conversations. Yeah. Why Why did you use the sense of repetition and what lines or emphasis were you placing? Because I could sense that there were some really important things that you wanted people to feel the full impact of um, yeah. and that the characters themselves also strongly felt when they were, you know, using this really strong repetition. Yeah. Um, the way I kind of conceived the play, uh, it, it is a fictional play, but it did stem from me kind of working through my own trauma and grief um so that's kind of the structure of the play it's almost a memory play so Mm. these are important memories for the character who's dying it's kind of like the life flashing before his eyes in the final stages but for the characters that are left behind it's it's them kind of trying to grapple with what has happened um but also to hold on to the memories because we know memory is such a a bizarre thing that can shift and change you know as time goes on and, yeah. and and new things come into it or we remember a distinct detail so those repetitions are 
they're almost turning points for the characters mm. where there's something that's really sparked there and that they're either trying to recapture that moment or they're trying to really get their point across mm. that this is the most important thing in that memory. Yeah, and the word uh, control comes up quite a yeah. lot as well. Yeah. What what sense of, like, what is it about control for you that is really important in this particular play but also voluntary assisted dying and how do you conceive of control being a good thing? Yeah. yeah. Well, when we were um, looking at the structure of the play, the kind of the through line we were thinking of was this idea of control and surrender, that we, we want control um, but the inevitable thing with death is that it does make everyone who's involved surrender. So that idea of um, control was is so important to kind of motivate people and to make people feel safe and then the, mm. the, the surrender can come a, a lot easily, a lot more easily. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it, um, even though there is this sense of wanting control... Um, there isn't really. And it is uncontrollable. Yeah. And, it, and still will be with mm, voluntary yes. assisted dying. Yeah. For some, it will help them achieve um, a controlled death, which is, you know, if it's for a small proportion of people, that's excellent. Mm. Let's do it. Mm. But for some, even people, I think there's a statistic that there's 100 people that have already contacted the navigators to try yeah. and access it. Yeah. A lot of those won't be eligible mm. yes. for different reasons. Yeah. So it, it isn't going to um, wipe out bad deaths, and it isn't. No. But it, for some people, it mm. will, and for those people, you know, that's what it's it's for. Yeah, and from your father and his perspective, yeah. working in palliative care and in particular oncology and cancer. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's confronting for anyone in medicine to be in a field where death is yeah. the most prominent. Yeah. Um, ICU is another example, yeah. critical care work. And I'm just wondering what kind of impact uh, it has on nurses like your father and mother and doctors who um, witness death regularly and how, whether they feel that uh, the palliative care model is enough for those who don't qualify for voluntary assisted dying because a lot of people would still feel, um, I guess, torn even mm. with this legislation mm. being mm. available because, as you said, not everyone will qualify. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing about Victoria. It is quite um, a conservative law, so it will be interesting to see how that plays out in the next couple of years. Um, but, it, you know, if Dad was here, he'd definitely say that, you know, he, he could only do what was prescribed in the, the little green book of palliative care. Mm. Um, and in most cases, that suffices. Uh, in some, it doesn't, and it will continue not to. So mm. it, it will be interesting, um, yeah, in that respect. Yeah. Um, Carolyn, because we've just been talking, I guess, about the global context mm. and where Victoria fits in, mm. um, where do we compare or how do we compare in terms of other countries? Because um, clearly there probably is a bit of a sliding scale in terms of the, you know, access that yeah. people have. Well, um, I think the, the Victorian model very much mirrors, say, some of the North American legislation. So in Oregon, they have a Death with Dignity Act, which I think was passed in 1994. And that's, that's also for um, adults who are facing a terminal illness. 
Um, and th that legislation has now been replicated around uh, many states in uh, in North America. Uh, we've heard recently of, of a teenage girl, Noah, in the Netherlands who was supposedly accessing uh, euthanasia, um, but later that was reported that she'd in fact died of, um, of lack of nutrition. But um, in the Netherlands, people can access euthanasia, and this is um, a physician, you know, the, the doctor actually um, uh, performs the last step, and that's available even for um, people as young as 12 as long as they have their parents' agreement. Um, and, and even there, you can make uh, a request for assisted dying through an advanced decision. So even before you lose capacity, um, you, can, you can make that choice for a later time. And that would work well, perhaps, for people who are suffering from dementia. Mm. That's not going to be available in the Victorian legislation. You have to have capacity at the time of making the request. So, um, yes, it, 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 I think the Victorian model is, is pretty conservative, um, uh, but at least it's been passed. And, mm. you know, in the UK there's been numerous um, attempts to uh, put, put up legislation and that's always been, always fall at, uh, fell at the last hurdle. So mm. um, I think that um, it's a good step. Yeah. It's like the damn wall is broken, so, yeah. you know, now yes. we'll see how it plays out. But yes. the, first, the first chink is out. But the way I understand it internationally is there's some countries where suffering qualifies and yes. that's the only thing well, that's right. that that's, counts. Yeah. And Sorry. somewhere it's the, the, the prognosis that qualifies, so you don't mm. actually have to be suffering. Um, but in Victoria it's both. both. Yes. You've got to... Mm. Yeah, so both. I should have said in, in, in the Netherlands you just mm. have to show unbearable suffering. Um, and not terminal illness, so that could be from from all sorts of, of, yeah. of things. And yeah. so that's a much more liberal approach there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm. yeah, that is really interesting. And in the play, I mean, your father was, I believe, fifty nine. Yeah, yeah. He passed yeah. away. Fifty eight. Yeah. Yeah, and so I mean that is still a fairly young age yeah. for an adult who, um, you know, has. I think he believed he would live a lot longer, and he yeah. seemed like a very fit. You know, well, he was still working, and that's the kind of aim, isn't it? You want yeah. to retire and yes. you want to enjoy that retire. Exactly. And Dad was uh, felt really cheated of that. Yeah, yeah. Travel the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, he's clearly <laughs> done well with three kids as well. I think. Yeah. Um, so in your play, though, we the age is even less. It's yep. um, I think about thirty four is the yep. age of the character who's um, dying, and. It is an interesting situation that you have them in um, because the majority of the characters are in their 30s, really. Yeah. Um, and it, it's an interesting thing and it may be... I'm not sure whether it has a different um, element to it uh, given that a lot of people in their 30s may not have got married, which that comes up as a theme in the play, mm -hmm. may not have had children if they wanted to, may not have travelled or, you know, had a full career like they might have planned. And so there are a lot of kind of elements for those younger people who may feel like they've been even further cut short mm. from those kind of milestones of their mm. their lives. How did you explore that with your actors? Um, because it, I think that it must be a challenge for any person of any age to kind of tap into the experience of death and dying yeah. for anything. When I originally started writing the play, it was yeah. originally for older characters yeah. and then I kind of thought, oh, well, why... 
why am I doing that? Why not link it closer to me? So the age mm. has been brought down closer to me. And it, it's that thing about it mirrors through um, the process of witnessing my dad's death. I confronted my own mortality through that, um, through that family connection. Um, so for the cast, it, it's been... I mean, there's such a lovely cast with such big open hearts, which you would have seen in the performance, but they've really tried to honour what it would be and they've really tried to understand, you know, the the issues and the relationships and and it's the interesting thing with acting is not to go in there and judge the character because there's a chance that the play could become over-sentimental and that the relationships could be all caught up in the sentiment of someone dying. So there's still... They're really bringing um, a kind of wholeness to the character in how they react to the situations. They're, yeah. they're not altogether likeable characters, mm. um, which I thought was really important. But, yeah, I've just been so lucky to have a cast that was willing to go there, was willing to understand, and and it doesn't come up much for people in their 30s, this kind of issue, and I think mm. that's what I tried to do with the play is to just bring it down so people can start considering now. The more we consider what we want our death to look like yeah. and how we want it to be, the better prepared we're going to be there mm. Yeah, when it comes. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, it's certainly the case um, that young people can get chronic illness when yeah. you know at any point but certainly i think the sweet spot is in the th- their 30s particularly women and autoimmune diseases for example yeah. so yeah i mean it could hit at any time and as we've seen with women and ovarian cancer that's another one that can mm. you know reach any person at any point mm. in their lives yeah um so yeah I, I can see that and i also did recognize that they weren't fully likable <laughs> which is why i i was really um interested in that to be honest because i was sitting there going i don't know how personally invested i am in in them yeah right which sometimes you do feel like you are yeah um and so yeah i i felt like i was more um thinking about the issue or the dynamics rather than yeah and that's what i wanted to show that the the experience of confronting death it's that the idea of control and your walls go up Mm. because to surrender to it is so painful and emotional and awful and it takes time and it takes time for the characters in the play to surrender and dan the main character kind of gets there before everyone else Mm. and says you've got to get on board because this is happening so it's that that process of control Mm. and surrender Mm. that kind of underpins the whole show yeah yeah and it was particularly pertinent with the his mother having um yeah and that's the interesting thing about dan is he's avoiding death through his mother Mm. um and then has to confront it himself yeah 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 Yeah. it's um yeah, a really interesting play in the way that you've utilised props as well and the stage, which I just think is fantastic because it really becomes more about the actors and the text mm. and they're, you know, used in very particular ways to support the text. So, yeah, it seems like it's been very well thought through. Yeah. Um, in terms of it being at La Mama, like that's obviously a fantastic venue to have any play in Melbourne. Is this your first play that you've written that's been staged or have you been involved in other plays around 
um, you know, other issues. I've done lots of writing before, but this is kind of the first play that I've had ownership over Mm. um, myself. So we developed it at La Mama at the end of 2017. Um, So it's been a year and a half in between versions. Um, But La Mama, I just incredible it's set up for artists Mm. it's run by artists um and it feels like the perfect place to put on a show like this at this time uh la mama's been going for 52 years um so their ability to deal with social issues and to put current plays up about social issues has always been there and i Mm. feel very proud to be one of those plays in that huge legacy. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, it's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, obviously part one building of La Mama had a tragic accident yes. um, yeah. and there was a fire. So the um, one that you might be thinking of on Faraday Street is not being used, but the courthouse still is, which yeah. is on the corner of Elgin almost. Um, and Rathdown, I think it is, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so in terms of people attending this play, they can see the play. They can also go to the panel discussion, which you're both featured on as well as others, yeah. which is on Wednesday. Yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow night. night. Um, yeah. So it's a panel discussion to mark the day. Tomorrow is the first day that people will be able to initiate the process of voluntary assisted dying Um, and I thought because the play was on it was important to kind of mark it Um, and the what we're thinking about for the panel is that it's kind of how did we get here mm-hmm. and where are we going? So yeah. what's happened? What's going to happen in the future? Um, so we've got some really interesting speakers. Conrad Marshall from The Age is um, chairing the panel. Carolyn's on it. Uh, we've got the Attorney General Jill Hennessy, the leader of the Reason Party, Fiona Patton, uh, Marg, who is a retired nurse who's looking to uh, go through the process of voluntary assisted dying. Um, and we've also got Cass Hall on it and Nick Carr, a GP. So it's a very full panel, yeah. which will be very interesting. So that's on tomorrow night after the show. Uh, the show is sold out beforehand, but mm-hmm. people are welcome to come to La Mama um, at about quarter to eight, eight o'clock mm-hmm. to um, come in and see the panel. Um, but then the show's on till Sunday. So if you're interested in booking, you can go to the La Mama website. Yes, which is La Mama. I don't have, I've got Citizen Theatre up, which is why I don't have that one. Lamama.com.au, I'm pretty sure. It is. Um, But if you Google Lamama, it will definitely come up. Yeah, it's on till June the 23rd. Yeah. yeah, so it finishes on Sunday. So tomorrow is sold out, but you're welcome to come yeah. to the panel. And then we've got shows Thursday, Friday, Saturday at 7.30 and Sunday at 4 o'clock. Yeah, it's going to be an amazing panel because I've interviewed Fiona twice. Yeah. Yeah, and I she's know great. Jill's really impressive because she was the Minister for Health That's as yeah. well. Yeah, and now she's yeah. the Attorney General. So mm. it shows uh, how how emotional they are about the day as well that they're they're choosing to come. So I think it's a really nice occasion for people to come together. There'll be people in the audience that are looking to access it. There'll be Mm. people... I know there's people in the audience that have been campaigners, so it's kind of like a gathering Mm. of of different people who the issue affects, and Mm. I think it'll be a really special event. Yeah, no doubt it will, yeah. Yeah. It's been so wonderful to speak to both of you and I really appreciate your time and your expertise and sharing your personal experiences and um, yeah congratulations on this play Rory thanks and Carolyn on your wonderful work in this field very broad field thank you 
I've been speaking with playwright Rory Godbold, who has written the play that is showing at La Mama right now, When the Light Leaves, and it's directed by Jade... Kirchett. Yep, Kirchett. Kirchett. And it's um, got some amazing actors, Thomas Parrish, Lee Scully, Veronica Thomas and Michelle Robertson. And um, there's quite a few performances you can access on um, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So, yeah, as you said, sold down. out on Wednesday, but you can still go to the panel at quarter to eight. Quarter to eight, yeah. Yeah, excellent. And it runs for about 70 minutes, so it's very accessible. And um, as I said, it's also at La Mama Courthouse, which is on, sorry, Drummond Street, 349 Drummond Street in Carlton. Uh, As I said, I've been speaking with Rory Godbold and also Dr Carolyn Johnston from the Melbourne University's Law School. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Coming up is another very interesting person who has um, a very particular perspective and vantage point. Uh, I'm speaking about Anthony DePiran, who is a Hong Kong-based lawyer and writer, and um, he's written a very short uh, book which is called City of Protest, A Recent History of Dissent in Hong Kong. It's an excellent um, background to the history of protest in Hong Kong and what makes Hong Kong very special and um, unique. And so we're just going to speak to Anthony on Skype and I'm hoping this all works and if it doesn't, we'll call him on the phone. But um, I'll just see if we've got Anthony on Skype. Hi there. Uh, Hi, good morning. Yay. (laughs) Good morning to you. It's great to have you on the show and thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, there's um, such a a fascinating, I guess, number of events that have been happening in Hong Kong and not even necessarily uh, in just recent times. There's been, um, as you say in in this book, City of Protest, which came out a couple of years ago, that, you know, Hong Kong has a strong history of protesting and political participation um, and it is quite a unique situation that Hong Kong finds itself in given the um, their history and the involvement of uh, British imperialism for a significant proportion of Hong Kong's uh, existence. So I just wanted to quickly cover off on um, the background about Hong Kong and what uh, Hong Kong actually is and how it relates to mainland China nowadays. So could you, I guess, explain or share with us um, Hong Kong's arrangement and how it came to be what it is now? Yeah, certainly. And look, yeah, it's been a really a historic week here in Hong Kong. But as you say, it's not just a, a one-off event. It's part of a very long um, and proud history of, of protest and dissent in Hong Kong. But Hong Kong has really always been a, a very special and unique place in the world. It was um, originally um, occupied by the British after the Opium Wars back in the 19th century. Um, uh, so China was forced to basically cede Hong Kong to the British, who then took it over as a colony. And it was a a colony that was to be held by them and, uh, until 1997. Um, and at that point, um, the UK and China agreed that uh, the UK would hand Hong Kong back to China to be ruled by China. But of course, the historical development of Hong Kong compared to the rest of China was, was very different at that point, Hong Kong having been ruled by, by the British for more than a century. Um, and meanwhile, 
while, uh, you know, mainland China, of course, had had the communist revolution after World War II and in 1949 had de developed in a completely different trajectory. So in order to sort of figure out how to integrate Hong Kong back into the rest of mainland China, um, Deng Xiaoping, who was the ruler of China at the time, came up with the idea of one country, two systems. And what this meant was that Hong Kong would be part of China, would be part of the one, the one country, but the existing system that had developed in Hong Kong would continue to exist separately. So Hong Kong, even after the handover to China in 1997, has continued to have its own currency, um, its own separate legal system based on the, the British common law legal system, the same as we have in Australia, um, uh, its own separate financial system, um, and most importantly to the Hong Kong people and most importantly to what's been going on this week, its own set of rights and freedoms um, in enshrined in, in Hong Kong's constitution, um, things like the, the right to freedom of speech, the right to a, a free press, uh, the right to freedom of assembly and, and the right to, to, to freedom of protest, and also very importantly for many Hong Kongers, uh, the right to exercise freedom of religion. All these things are, are, are rights that um, aren't enjoyed fully in mainland China um, and, and are enjoyed fully in, in Hong Kong under the one country, two systems um, formula. And so that's sort of the, the position that Hong Kong finds itself in, and, um, and that really is sort of the, the source of, of much of the conflict of, of the past week and indeed um, the past 20 years as, as Hong Kong has sort of struggled to assert their identity as, as, as a unique place continuing to be um, part of China but apart from it in many ways. Yes, it's an interesting tension that exists and, uh, and interesting that... Um, Deng Xiaoping uh, conceived of a time when the two would merge or become one uh, in all senses of the word um, and I wonder how that will play out. It's going to be a very interesting one, given the uh, culture of protest in Hong Kong and the real commitment that a lot of its people have to the rights that they have at the moment um, and the fact that they probably would not have a number of those rights in mainland China if they were to be part of um, the People's Republic of China in every sense. Yes, that's right. So one of the, the really important parts of that, that constitution that, that Hong Kong got when they were handed back to China in 1997 is the guarantee that, that all of those rights and freedoms would last for 50 years without change. Um, and so the expiry date on that is, is 1st of July 2047. Um, now, the, the, the law doesn't say what will happen in 2047. Um, certainly at that point, mainland China is free to sort of fully integrate Hong Kong back Back into the rest of mainland China, but they also may choose to continue, you know, leaving Hong Kong the way it is. Um, but you know, certainly there is an expectation, one way or the other, that by the time we get to 2047, Hong Kong and the rest of China will have converged in some way or another. Now, I think when the British signed the the Sino-British Joint Declaration that sort of set out the terms under which Hong Kong would be returned to China, uh, they signed that in 1984, they probably were thinking that by, by 2047, you know, China will probably be a, a free, democratic, pluralistic society and Hong Kong will be able to fit in just fine. Um, whereas as we, you know, as the years tick by, that's looking increasingly unlikely. And I think from Beijing's side of the table, they expect that as we get closer to 2047, um, you know, 
Beijing's influence in Hong Kong will increasingly grow such that by the time we get to 2047, um, there won't be much difference and, and, and Hong Kong will merge into China at that time the way that it is. But that's really one of the, the big causes for anxiety here in Hong Kong. The people are aware of the, the ticking clock of of 2047 in the background. But with things like this proposed extradition law that people have been protesting about over the, the past week and, and various other um, uh, gradually creeping um, encroachments on Hong Kong's rights and freedoms, people here are worried that uh, that timeline is basically being advanced by 30 years and, and the things that they were preparing to sort of have to start thinking about and struggling for in 2047 are, are happening right now. Yes, exactly. It, that's why um, it's not just about an extradition bill. It really is about a whole lot more than that. Mm. And um, I've, I'd like to understand a bit about Beijing um, and the Communist Party and how uh, China itself has uh, some sway or influence politically with Hong Kong um, and particularly around the structure or the governance of uh, the parliament and the lawmaking bodies because um, it seems not necessarily uh, a particularly um, what Australians might conceive of is very democratic way of um, appointing parliamentarians or legislators. No, not at all. It's at best a, a, a semi-democratic system. Um, so there's two key sources of power in Hong Kong. One is the, the chief executive, which was sort of the position that replaced the, the governor under the British colonial system. And you could think of sort of as a president or a, or a prime minister, although the way that she or he is appointed is, is quite unique. Um, the chief executive is not elected by the people of Hong Kong. Um, so the current chief executive, Carrie Lam, and, and the ones before her, uh, have been elected by a, an election committee that is made up of only 1,200 people. And those people are drawn from the various business elites, uh, professional groups, and other special interest groups from Hong Kong society. So it's a very small circle of um, of Hong Kong's elites who, who themselves choose who the chief executive is going to be. And the practice for the, the, the appointment of the last, all of the last chief executives has been that you know, Beijing has subtly but very clearly pointed out who their preferred candidate is, um, and their preferred candidate uh, has always won. And, and that is because the pro-Beijing interest groups dominate that 1,200-person election committee. So Beijing effectively controls who is appointed as the chief executive, and the chief executive as the sort of semi-presidential figure in Hong Kong um, wields significant power in terms of setting government policy, setting the budget, um, proposing new laws, making all of the important appointments to everything from the government bodies down to all of the vice chancellors and the university councils of all the public universities in Hong Kong. So it's an extremely powerful position. Um, so then the other body that is sort of responsible for governing Hong Kong is what's called the Legislative Council, Hong Kong's parliament. Um, and it is selected by a, another very odd semi-democratic process. Half of the seats in that parliament are elected by the people, um, you know, with different seats and people voting in each seat, exactly the same as, as we vote for the lower house in in Australia. But the other half of that parliament is again elected by these special interest groups. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, different professional industry groups each have a seat. So you have a seat for the Architects Association, a seat for the lawyers, a seat for the doctors, a seat for the property developers. Uh, 
and then seats for various um, rural clan organisations, um, various industry groups such as the shipping industry, the tourism industry, and so on and so forth. And, and again, that half of the parliament is dominated by the pro-Beijing business lobby. So the result of that semi-democratic system is that um, consistently, year after year, the pro-democracy parties win a majority of the popular vote. Um, but uh, because the way the system is rigged, the pro-Beijing parties end up having a majority of the seats. Um, and that means that they therefore can control the parliament and can control what, uh, what legislation gets through. Indeed, um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, in, in the past, the, the pro-democracy parties had enough of a minority that they could sort of you know, filibuster and block certain things that they didn't like. But the other development over the last couple of years is that um, the Hong Kong government, with Beijing's backing, has actually um, disqualified several pro-democracy candidates from the legislature um, and then barred other candidates for running because of their political views, which is in a addition sort of given the pro-Beijing parties an even more entrenched position in the legislature, which is uh, yeah, really a, given them a very strong hand in, in sort of running the agenda for how Hong Kong is, is governed. Yes, well, you actually just said what I was going to ask. Um, and maybe you can expand on that because I was going to say I read uh, in, a, in an op-ed that, um, as you say, lawmakers have been disqualified by the courts for saying their oaths too slowly or with the wrong intonation. Politicians have been forbidden to stand for election. A particular political party was banned. Activists have been sent to prison on public order offences. So in, the, in recent years, there has been... Um, um, in in many people's belief, a kind of creeping uh, control over freedom of expression or speech and freedom of protest. And certainly there seems to be uh, more of a crackdown on those kinds of um, activities, even though uh, people still are, as is very clear, taking to the streets uh, when they do believe that something is wrong and they don't want um, it to occur. Do you think that on the ground, like in terms of living there, has there been any kind of sense of anxiety about what's next and um, whether there is... Uh, a lot more influence coming from outside over how Hong Kong um, rules itself? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what the, the events of the, the last week have really been all about. Ever since um, the umbrella movement protests or the Occupy Central protests we saw here in Hong Kong five years ago and, and which uh, certainly made, made TV screens and newspapers around the world then, um, the Hong Kong government with, with Beijing's backing has really been, as you say, tightening the screws on, on dissent and taking all sorts of measures um, along the lines that, that, that you just outlined. Uh, and the interesting thing has been is that they've done that in, in, a, in, a, in a creeping, gradual way, a kind of death by a thousand cuts way. Um, and it's drawn a very muted response from the Hong Kong public. There hadn't up until the past week been any really big public demonstrations, any really major public outcry. And I think um, you know, that certainly may have emboldened the Hong Kong government to keep pushing in that direction. And it certainly um, led people to sort of begin to ask the question, have Hong Kongers given up? Um, and is political protest uh, you know, after the, the, the so-called failure of the umbrella movement in 2014 something that, that's dead in Hong Kong? And are we not going to see 
these kind of protests anymore? Um, well, I think that the last week has given a pretty clear answer to that question. And I think what it has shown is that there has been this anxiety really bubbling away and building over the last five years as people have seen these various uh, coercive measures taken, these various <clears throat> this various creeping infringement on their rights and freedoms. And, and this was really just that, that last issue that, that sort of lit the fuse and, and brought them all out into the streets. Uh, and what is underlying all of this, and, and it, it comes back to you know, the opening of our our conversation is what is it that makes Hong Kong different and distinct from mainland China? And I think it's it's the anxiety that, that those rights and freedoms that Hong Kongers see as really core to their identity are being are being threatened, and, and and that's what's really evoked this this visceral response that's brought you know over a million people out into the streets two weeks in a row. Yeah, it's it's astounding the scale of um, people taking part, and you mm. mentioned there Hong Kong and the fact that they have a quite a distinct identity in the way that mm. they see themselves and mm. how they might compare themselves to people from mainland China. What mm. um, what are some of the Hong Kong so-called values that mm. pe- that are often referred to as being, you know, what Hong Kongers stand for and um, and believe in? Yeah. So I just a little bit of history is that you know going back to to the past you know 20 years ago around the time of the handover or before at that time hong kong was much wealthier than mainland china and hong kong represented a a big proportion of the mainland chinese economy as a whole and i think hong kong was you know, perhaps at that time had their identity tied more to the fact that they were wealthier and better off than people across the border. You know, mainland China was poor and struggling and, and Hong Kong was a developed modern economy and a developed modern city. Now, of course, in the last 20 years, China has, has progressed incredibly quickly in terms of material gains and the economy and all those sorts of things. So that distinction doesn't really hold. And indeed, Hong Kong is really reliant on, on mainland China and mainland Chinese businesses and tourists and, and customers for, for its own economy. But what has you know kept Hong Kong distinct is, as, as you just mentioned, the so-called Hong Kong core values. And these are the things that, that people look at and say, these, this is what we have that makes Hong Kong different, not only from the rest of China, but in many ways different from much of the rest of Asia. So what, what are those Hong Kong core values? They are things like all those rights and freedoms that we talked about earlier, the free press, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and so on. It also includes the legacy of, of the, the common law legal system, that the British-based legal system that Hong Kong continues to have with an independent judiciary, which which is not the case in the mainland. It includes clean and accountable government. Um, Hong Kong has a, an ICAC, an Independent Commission Against Corruption, um, and, and it has one of the, the sort of cleanest uh, cleanest governments in, in, in Asia. Um, and overall, a transparent and predictable system where people feel that they can operate without undue government influence, can exercise their rights and freedoms, um, can practice whatever religions that they wish. Um, all these things are things that, that Hong Kongers see as it makes them special and different from, from certainly from the rest of China. And it has made Hong Kong, in a way, a real haven throughout Asia for, for businesses, for, for researchers, for NGOs, for um, academics, for writers and the press and, and, and artists and, and cultural people. And so for any for any time that Hong Kongers see that threatened in any way, um, that, that really is not just, it's not just a political threat, it's a threat to their very identity. Yes. Um, and 
In terms of publishing, I know that's been in the news quite recently, particularly around one publisher, New Century Press, uh, which mm. is founded by Bao Pu, who mm. said that, um, you know, he see, sees things as um, becoming quite mm. dire for him in terms of the range of books he can publish um, and that it's become more of a non-profit activity now than a business. Um, what kind of situation do publishers of content um, that may be critical of uh, China or even other um, elements in the world? Like, uh, Are there any kinds of uh, official or unofficial ways of um, preventing ideas from circulating? Uh, yeah, there's there's two key ways. I mean, I should say there's no official censorship in Hong Kong. So in theory, you can write and publish whatever you want. But there's two key ways that that, that dissenting views are sort of suppressed. One way is through the the power of the market, the power of of, of, of cash. So one of the um, the major sort of anti-government newspapers in Hong Kong is called the Apple Daily. And what they have found is over recent years, um, uh, consistent campaign against them in terms of Beijing putting pressure on companies to stop advertising with them. Um, and they have seen many of the major companies in Hong Kong, such as the major banks, um, uh, many of the major sort of retail stores and, and commercial chains and so on, have all been pulling their advertising from the Apple Daily. And of course, without advertising, a newspaper can't survive. So just the, the sheer pressure of, of Beijing influencing the market to take money away from these companies is one way to, to censor them. And the other way is the sort of um, the, the, the sort of Damocles that sort of hangs over everyone in Hong Kong of, of, of the mainland taking other measures. And the, the way that we saw this happen was a few years ago when um, uh, not Baopu and his company, but some other booksellers um, uh, were abducted from the streets of Hong Kong and another, uh, Gui Minhai, was abducted from his uh, holiday home in Thailand and taken back to China to, to, to face detention and, and, and investigation there. Now, those, um, those that, that company and the people involved with that company, those booksellers had been publishing um, books critical of the Chinese government um, and, and selling them uh, mostly to Chinese tourists visiting Hong Kong, but also I think shipping some by mail order back into mainland China, and they were they faced detention investigation there. So I think what what Bao Pu and his New Century Publishing were facing is similar concerns that um, you know, he's got the commercial pressure of, for example, all the bookstores in Hong Kong being controlled by Chinese state-owned companies, such that he can't get his books into stores. Um, you know, so facing that commercial pressure, and also the concern that uh, that the, the the authorities might, might sort of come and get him. Yeah, there, there is that obviously. Sorry. Sorry, um, there is that obviously uh, threat or perhaps concern or anxiety um, around what might happen uh, mm. in terms of that expression. And certainly with the protests that we've seen, uh, the, the right to protest is a, a right that is often exercised in Hong Kong and you write in your book um, that according to police statistics that um, in 2015 there were uh, one... 1,142 public processions in just mm. one year, which is equivalent to more than three per day. Um, that is, mm. like, seems to be that Hong Kongers are punching above their weight uh, when it comes to <laughs> political participation in, this, in the uh, mode of protest. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, mean, I should say that the, the bar is pretty low. I think any gathering of more than a dozen people counts as a protest if they're out there holding banners and so on. Um, but even by that measure, it is pretty extraordinary. And I think one of the reasons for that is that, you know, given all the, the limitations on the political system that we were talking about earlier, protest is one of the last really effective ways for people to get out there and have their voice heard. So, you know, for example, they can't elect uh, the chief executive. Um, they didn't elect Carrie Lamb, but um, in a way they're voting with their feet by bringing, you know, up, up, upwards of two million people out onto the street to demand her resignation. Um, and there is an interesting kind of historical context for this, which is um, going back to 2003, um, a very similar situation. The government was proposing to introduce a, a, a national security law that would have made it a crime in Hong Kong to um, you know, subvert the mainland government. Um, again, provoked a huge response from the public, a big demonstration. Um, they, they, the, the law was withdrawn. Um, and a year or so after that, the, the chief executive at the time, Tung Chi Hua, indeed resigned. Um, so that was really, really showed Hong Kong as the power of protest, that if they come out in sufficient numbers, um, they can change the government policy and they can get a leader who they didn't vote for to be, to be, to be forced out of office. Um, mm. And so what we're really seeing is a replay of that. And the big question is, will they be able to have, you know, they've already had the same result in terms of getting the, the extradition law withdrawn. Will they be able to get uh, Carrie Lamb out of office as well is really the big question. Yes, well, we saw over the weekend, because um, there was obviously uh, protests happening last week during the weekdays, and we mm. saw them escalate with um, police using rubber bullets and tear gas uh, on some of the protesters, and there were reports um, calling some of the protesters rioters, and some people were arrested uh, for for engaging in a so-called riot and so there's a lot of um, contestation about what was happening on Wednesday and then mm. on Sunday we saw um, as you've you know referenced and I believe you've taken um, quite some good content and put it up on Twitter to share what it looked like on Sunday mm. there were a lot of people cramming onto trains to get into the city and there were mm. estimates of two million people which is about 30 percent of the population of Hong mm. Kong. Um, in your view, it, do you think that Sunday was one of the biggest moments in terms of uh, mass political participation um, and, and protest? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was... Look, it was certainly bigger than the Sunday before that. And we we're already had sort of estimates of a million people out, you know, the, the Sunday, the week before. And, and uh, a couple of days ago was was certainly, certainly bigger by by any measure. Um, and it, it was also definitely bigger than those protests in, in 2003 I mentioned earlier. And the estimates of those were, were half a million at the time. The only thing that really compares in terms of scale for, for previous protests in Hong Kong, uh, we have to go all the way back to 1989 to the Tiananmen Square Massacre. Um, and back then, um, again, over a million people in Hong Kong um, came out to the streets to, to protest that and to support the students in Beijing. Um, and I think that was, again, around a, a quarter or a third of the Hong Kong population at the time. So um, but the, the scale on, on Sunday was just absolutely vast and, and really, really mind-boggling. Every every major road that runs, um, you know, east-west across the, the north side of Hong Kong Island was completely jam-packed full of people, and uh, they were marching constantly for, for, for eight hours or so, um, just a sea of, of black T-shirts um, all, all calling out uh, for the chief executive, Carrie Lam, to, to, withdraw, uh, to, to withdraw the 
the, the extradition law and for her to resign, but also really movingly, and I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of Hong Kong identity, one of the main slogans they were calling out was um, uh, in Cantonese, Hong Kong Yan which means go Hong Kongers, um, and just the, the, this sort of solidarity and, and the spirit of community among the crowd, and the sense that this this was really, a, you know, the, them fighting for their identity. This really came through in that powerful, powerful chant. Yes, it certainly has an existential quality to it, and it seems like mm. it has that force. Um, in terms of where we are now, I just have to ask finally, um, we've seen Carrie Lam, she came out and um, gave a statement and uh, she basically said, oh, you know, clearly we haven't communicated well and you haven't really understood. I don't know why our language hasn't been sufficient, um, which is really not <laughs> going to do her many favours. And um, and she has suspended uh, the bill or with the... It, it won't continue yet, but it seems like there's, it's still kind of hovering over people as, as an option that won't really go away. Um, what do you think the sense is now in terms of next steps for those protesters and people who don't want to see the extradition bill, which, um, of course, opens up the chance for people um, to be potentially extradited to China, for example, uh, from Hong Kong for um, a range of offences? Yeah, I think, look, for all practical purposes, that extradition bill is dead. And at this point, the government and the protesters are kind of fighting over the language or fighting over how to describe it. The government has said we're, we're suspending work on the bill. Um, the protesters say we want you to say that you've withdrawn it. Um, mm. the, the government spokespeople have already said, look, when we say we've suspended it, we mean there there's no timetable to resume it. And by the way, we've got um, Legislative Council elections due next year anyway, and it's not going to happen before then. And once the elections happen, it's all off and we have to start the process again anyway. So, you know, don't worry. For all practical purposes, it's dead. But I think the symbolism of, of them actually saying that it's been withdrawn is important to the protesters and they're continuing to ask for that. Um, the other really big question about what happens next is is what's going to happen to, to Carrie Lam. Um, when she was elected into office, when I say elected, elected by 777 votes out of that 1,200 into office a couple of years ago, she said that um, she wouldn't stay in office if she lost the support of the people. Um, well, if you needed any clearer demonstration of losing the support of the people, then I think think we, we, we couldn't have had that um, more than what we had on Sunday. Um, so will she resign or will she stay in office? I think a lot of people get the sense that given, as I mentioned earlier, that the first chief executive, Tung Chi Hua, was forced out of office in similar circumstances 15 years ago, Beijing is going to be very reluctant to let her resign just because mm. of this, the message that it sends to Hong Kongers um, that they are free to, to, to really defy the Beijing authorities and, and have their way. Um, so it may be that she is forced to sort of stay in office as as a lame duck, um, uh, you know, with you know, obviously her authority significantly undermined, rather than Beijing uh, you know, allowing her to resign and suffering sort of the, the loss of face that that would entail. Indeed. I'm going to have to leave it there, Anthony, but thank you. I think you've illuminated this situation a great deal for us, and I really appreciate you explaining it so well and um, giving us a first-hand insight into what it's like over there in Hong Kong. Thanks. It's a pleasure to speak to you and, and thanks for bringing this attention and the situation in Hong Kong to, to the attention of everyone in Australia. It's fantastic. It's my privilege. Thank you so much, Anthony. I've been speaking with Anthony Dapiran, who's an author of City of Protest, and he's also a lawyer based in Hong Kong.
I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.